everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of July 1st, 2022. I'm here with filmmaker Gigi Hawkins. Hello. Editor-in-chief of No Film. Welcome back. Oh, I'm, I'm so excited to be back. Uh, Editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. And I am a uh, filmmaker fresh back from a shoot, Charles Hain. I've missed you guys. This week, we're going to be talking about basically the news you have to talk about, which is Roe v. Wade, because Jesus Christ insanity. And then we're going to try and steer the ship, if we can, back to a normal film podcast, a little bit of tech news about some new lenses I shot that I just came off a shoot and was blown away by, and follow that all up with a Ask No Film School this week on the No Film School podcast. All right. So the biggest news in the land is Roe v. Wade overturned by a corrupt, lying Supreme Court that perjured themselves in their confirmation hearings to get here. And because, just to point out, because they said they weren't going to do this. That's why, under oath. Yeah, just so in case anybody is unclear on that, they had uh, many of the new yeah. justices who voted to overturn it said very clearly under oath that they wouldn't do that. Yeah. And Democrats had six weeks to prepare. And the announcement came out the day the Democrats, the day that it was supposed to come out, and the Democrats were like, we're unprepared, except for fundraising emails. And I was like, oh, I've never unsubscribed from more email lists in one day in my life. It's like, just do anything. Just, just you know, and of course, AOC out there with like, here's nine things we can do. Like, we have Congress, we have Senate, we have the presidency, here are nine things we can do. This is the things we can do. If we're not doing them, it's it's a waste. And I was like, yes, there are always things you can do. And I never want to, I'm so tired of hearing, well, we don't have the votes. It's like, well, the Republicans don't have the votes and they managed to pull this off. So can we please just start acting like power is a thing that exists in the world and using it? Ah, sorry. I, I will rant a lot more as we continue to talk about this no, in our it's- movie podcast. Well, there are ways we're going to tie this in to the entertainment industry and the filmmaker. And that's, I'm just putting that up front as quickly as I can. So everybody knows that we are, we are talking about a major event in, in United States history here, but we're also talking about it as it affects our community and through the lens of our community. And I think that the ranting reaction is so human and something that we're all feeling because it's so overwhelming. And so I just want to acknowledge that. But I do know that we working in this industry can affect change in this space. And we're seeing how certain groups are starting to mobilize and starting to have conversations about what we can do and where we can hold people accountable at different levels. One of the things that happened over the weekend was a group of people, mostly women who are in sort of like decision-making positions in Hollywood came together. And I've heard of other sort of smaller groups of showrunners coming together and looking at like, okay, well, what is the immediate next step? And also how can we actually use the power that we have to influence things? And one of the things that I just wanted to call out is, well, first of all, I think one of the most important things is that we normalize abortion. Abortion is very normal. I had an abortion in college. And if I didn't, my life would be so different and I wouldn't be able to be here pursuing my dream of making films. And uh, and we just need to talk about it. And it's also not something that just impacts 
people with uterus, uteruses, uteri. And, and I think we're also in this space, especially in this indie filmmaking space that I look around and I see a lot of my friends who are guys. And, um, and in these meetings, both at the sort of like emerging filmmaker level where we're talking about this and also at this like J.J. Abrams level decision makers talking about it, I'm still seeing the majority of people engaging in the conversation are people who identify as women. And so I was thrilled when you guys brought it up. And I think you guys are setting a great example of like, this is a conversation that everyone needs to be involved with because it it impacts everyone and restricting access to reproductive care, which includes abortion, threatens health and independence of all people. And we've seen that with the abortion bans and restrictions in countries like Poland and Malta. So if, if we don't all engage in this conversation, then it is going to impact everyone. So I think it's important to for our, our listeners to learn more about what, what they can do to help. Um, and, you know, I could go into some specifics about that. But yeah, I'm just excited that you guys, you guys started this conversation today. Well, yeah, I, I appreciate that. I, I'm reminded of something. I saw a headline that was getting shared around from the New York Times that said it was about like, it was like uh, how abortion affects men. And I just was like laughing because I was like, yeah, because we really need to know how men are feeling right now. Like, that's the important thing right now is like, where, what are the men going through? The unheard voice, (laughs) underrepresented. But no, I like, you know, I, I've been in a relationship where there was an abortion. It's happened in my life. It changed the course of my life. And th- these things are, to me, this is a human rights issue mm-hmm. on top of a lot of other things. But this is taking away women's rights, like not as women, but as human beings. It's reducing them to, to a lesser state legally, which is yeah. unfathomable to me. So just on that on that basic level. Just, I want to call out one thing, George. Um, it, you know, it is... I know it might feel like for a lot of guys, they might not feel like it's in their place to be talking about this, or it might be, they might feel squeamish or they might feel scared or they might just want to like peace out of this conversation. But like, it is your place to talk about it. You are in a position where it affects you and you're in a position of like privilege and power where you can help push this conversation forward. So thank you for sharing that your experience. Like that is so, so, so important. Yeah, it's not something where it's a super comfortable thing for anybody to experience or share and all situations are complicated. But yeah, I think it does tie, again, very much into like one of the things about filmmaking. I think Charles can speak to this too and has a lot. Filmmaking or pursuing a career in this industry is a lifestyle choice that Mm -hmm. impacts everything. And there are things that happen in life that can restrict or change your ability to do that. And there's a complicated roundabout way that like, if we take away a woman's ability to make a decision about her body that permanently changes her, not just her life and like caring for someone, but like in so many ways, not to mention if you get one, there there are situations where not getting an abortion for health reasons will lead to death. That's not an, that's not an exaggeration. So like, yeah, death will impact the outcome of, of the rest of your narrative for sure. But there's all kinds of other ways it will. And if we, want to give everybody the opportunity to have a voice and to be represented or to choose a path in life. This is the kind of thing where like, you know, the old joke is like, if it was men, it wouldn't even be an issue. 
You know, it was like something right. that could get in the way of a man pursuing his dreams or living his best life or whatever, then or living or dying. I it would not. It would be a non-issue. There's no question about that. Just because partly this that is the we are patriarchal society and that's the law of the land has always been favored towards initially written simply for men. So it's that's our legacy that we're we're fighting and it's just depressing to take a massive backslide on any issue of equality. So yeah, go on. But I think that one obvious way it ties into filmmakers is that that's something that you can only do. We always talk about it in terms of economic status or class and privilege. Like some people have an opportunity to pursue their dreams. Some people don't. When we take people out of the equality equation, we make it impossible in many cases for them to pursue their dreams. <laughs> this, is, this is just basic math. Like, so we're in the business of talking to people about here's how to pursue your dreams. Like this gets in the way of that, this kind of thing. Not saying that people, that the idea of abortion is it's like, a, oh, you, abortion exists so people don't have to be burdened by things. Like, that's not what this is about. But there's other ways too. Like, I want to hear you guys too, on your thoughts on this. There have been, I've heard a lot of takes that, you know, Netflix among many companies, I, I'm failing to remember all of them, but there are many industry companies that have made it clear that they will allow for employees who are opting to get an abortion or want to, to move or travel to states where it's okay to do so or legal to do so. And they'll support that. I think that was kind of an instantaneous reaction that was like, we're not going to abide by this. But I've heard a couple takes on it that it's like, well, who wants to have to tell their employer? You know, like, <laughs> like that's not a comfortable situation, even if we applaud the spirit behind that. Yeah. It, I, mean, I mean, it sucks. You don't want to have to tell your employer this personal thing, just like you don't want to have to tell your employer when you have an ear infection It's and you have to go to the doctor. You, know, you don't want I, to talk to your boss about how many weeks it's been since you last menstruated. That's not oh, a comfortable right. conversation. Right. <laughs> hey. <laughs> hey, George. FYI. I mean, no. I, you know, in a lot of cases, we don't, in this culture, you make a really good point. Like people don't even want to talk to their boss about anything that could impede their ability to be a productivity machine, you know? Right. (laughs) Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I mean, and it's a real thing where there is anti-mother bias in the film industry. Mm-hmm. I, I like, I've not experienced it, but I've definitely been around productions where you've heard a comment like, like offhandedly, like, oh, I hear she's pregnant. And then they like move on to another candidate, like for like DP type jobs and stuff. Like I've anecdotally heard of that. And I firmly believe it. 
I firmly believe that people get ruled out for jobs or positions because, you know, like, ah, oh, I hear she's got a young kid. She wouldn't be willing to go above and beyond or whatever on the show, which I have never heard said about a man. I don't know that anybody takes into account the fact that I have a three-year-old when considering me for things, but I'm sure impacts job opportunities for women. The other thing this got me thinking about was I think there's a real obligation we have as filmmakers to constantly be attempting to identify tropes and attempting to identify our own internal assumptions. And about six or seven years ago, I started to work on a project that I've been in for a couple of reasons, but it was an abortion comedy. And the reason why I started to work on it is I noticed that there were two outcomes for a potential abortion in media, which is either they miscarried at the last minute or the character died. And this applied even to stuff I really liked. Like, I think Girls was really good. But the whole pilot of girls, I was like, holy shit, they're going to have an abortion. They're going to do this on girls. And then she miscarried. And I was like, oh, well, you just saved yourself that drama. And movies I really like, like Brick and Ides of Marsh, like otherwise good movies participated in this like, well, that character had an abortion and now she's going to die trope. And I was like, but so many of my relatives and so many of my friends have had abortions. And it's not been like a laughing matter, but their life has not stopped. Right. Like they've, right. they've, they've had a life, they've laughed again. And it seemed like a failure of imagination on a lot of filmmakers' parts to imagine a character that had an abortion and then went it was on. Fine. To, yes. Like it was, that. And, that it was fine. and again, I love Ides of March. I think it's a great movie. And I love Brick. And Ryan Johnson's one of my favorite working filmmakers. Like, but like, you know, people have abortions and then their lives continue. I stopped working on that project for lots of reasons. I had a very long conversation with a, a professional collaborator who was like, is this the right story for you right now? And I was like, maybe as a straight white male who's never participated, like never been in a relationship where this was the thing. Like, I think I could have still told the story, but it would have required a level of research and depth that then Obvious Child came out and mm -hmm. Obvious Child is an abortion comedy. And I was like, oh, okay. Like other people noticed the same trope I noticed and were like, that's dumb. And I think as filmmakers, we should be paying attention to to those things when we see them. Because these are some of my favorite filmmakers who fell into this trap of abortion means death for the mother as well. Or that abortion means death at all. Like in the Bible, it's, you know, before the baby quickens, it's not considered alive. Like it's a cluster of cells. It's not life yet. Life begins at breath is in the Old Testament. So like, I don't know. It's one of those things that like, I think one of the things to pay attention to as filmmakers is, is in the content of our work. And yeah. how we can try and have more nuance in the content of work. And then, yeah, on the flip side, like as working professionals, like look at all of the ways this impacts us and how we can be supportive and participatory to those around us. I mean, one thing that is great now is, you know, 15 years ago, I had a really good friend who had an abortion and was sort of having a tough time afterwards. And I could not find a single. Like I went on a research journey of like a therapeutic support mm -hmm. and all you could find for like people dealing with abortion was all like religious fundamentalist, like, you know, groups. Yeah. And it seems like in the last 15 years, we at least have grown also in that area where it's like, no, people can acknowledge this is a difficult, like sometimes difficult, sometimes not. I'm not going to question either way. But like, if you do want to talk to people after about the process, there's a wider variety of people available to talk to after. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you bring up the Ides of March, which was shot in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is where I had my abortion. And oh, wow. like around the same time, it must have been Michigan had a great tax credit 
And then they took it away, which was stupid because it's a beautiful place to film. But now it's a place where, you know, we the question of whether it'll be remain legal there to get an abortion is up in the air. And I think the most interesting thing about that experience is it was like, yes, it was something that happened. I went through it and then I, I moved on with my life. And it was something that like my, I told my friends, I told my roommates, and then like everyone was scared to bring it up afterwards. And sometimes I would bring it up and be like, Hey, remember this thing that happened? I missed a football Saturday because of this. And then they were like, Oh yeah. Okay. We can talk about it. And then when the six week ban was happening in, in Alabama, I posted about it and, uh, about this experience of like, Hey, you guys know me. Here's a picture of me when I didn't even know that I was pregnant. And I was like at hanging out with my friends in Michigan, just trying to live my life. And, and after I shared so many women reached out to me and they're like, I did this too. And I've just been scared to talk about it. And so we are at this like new phase where people are starting to feel comfortable talking about it. And I think that is one of the most important things is being able to talk about it as, as shitty as it is that we're in a situation where we have to now be able to talk to our employer about it. And like, you shouldn't have to be able to have to talk about it, but like, let's create a space where we can talk about it and we can say like, Hey, I have to go out of town or, or, or maybe if you're on the receiving end and somebody's like, I just have to go out of town for this week and I won't be able to be on set. I also think that it would, we'd be remiss to not talk about the lack of support of parenthood in this industry as well. You know, the there was a campaign, the the parenthood paid penalty campaign that was run by Jessica Dimock right before the pandemic, where she was pregnant filming a Netflix show and lost her health insurance because she was like a couple weeks under the DGA minimum. And so I think that we need to be talking, just talking about this so much more and like the, you know, how to support women and people and families and their choices on all sides. And I think that it is a really important step to be talking about it among your peers and opening up the conversation and, and making it so it doesn't have to be a stigmatized thing. Even if you're a dude talking to another dude about it, again, like that's so important. You both have clearly had it impact your lives and, and creating that space. Uh, again, it's so easy to like go down the rabbit hole of rambling about this because there's so much to talk about. No, there are a lot of tie-ins and yeah, parenting in, I think, as I said, like productivity, hyper-productivity culture makes it really hard to be like, have it be approved of, you know, or have it be sanctioned or have it be like anybody to understand that you show up to whatever you're doing. I feel fortunate in no film school because I feel like people are understanding this. But <laughs> that aside, like, I think that in most situations in my life and in my wife's life that like people don't get that you're going to show up at nine and already be fucking exhausted. <laughs> like that, that's kind of the reality sometimes. So that's another side of just like, do we make allowances or have compassion and understanding for what people are dealing with or what their life is and how it's different and how it may impact them and how maybe that shouldn't and not punish them necessarily. But I think that I had a really complicated personal relationship to movies that covered this topic for a very long time because I had so much of my own stuff wrapped up in it. It was really hard for me to handle certain movies emotionally. Like, I just kind of didn't want them. I didn't want to see them. And mm-hmm. I can, I, I, there were a few I remember that I was like, they were a big deal. And, and I was just like, I don't even want, I can't watch that. I don't like it. Like, I can't experience it. It makes me feel guilt. 
people carried a lot of guilt for a while. And like, I, I just, it, it's a really complicated thing. I just keep coming back to this idea that it's, it's a human rights issue that mm-hmm. we are, we have seen stripped from people. And if you're a filmmaker and you believe you have a current climate in the industry is one where, as Charles said, everybody is looking for the story you can tell. So if you have experiences with this topic, personally, this is a a topic you can speak on as a filmmaker, as a creator. And it's valuable to the discourse because the most powerful way we have as a tool, like this is a very powerful tool we use when we can, when we're allowed to wield it. And Mm -hmm. I think that if that's your agenda and you want to be one of those people and you have stories to tell about it, it's welcome and necessary and, and useful if you're comfortable with it. I would never do it. Like it's not, I don't feel that way about it for me, but I think a lot of people, I would hope they would um, because we need to have those stories. And like I said, for a while, for me, I was like, it's such a powerful tool sometimes that I was like, I don't really, I can't really get into it. Like I can't, exp- I, I'm not comfortable getting into it as an audience. I also think there's a lot we can do in our working day-to-day life to, you know, going back to the the sort of broader conversation of like how parenting decisions affect your career and how sometimes like making certain parenting decisions can affect it. Like I just came off a two-week shoot and I dropped my daughter off at school every single morning of the shoot because the shoot started a little later. And then I always left because I need to be home for bedtime because it's important Mm -hmm. to me to be home for bedtime. Like I'm, yeah. I'm not going to, I miss bedtime once. Like I want to be there for bedtime. And like a couple people in the crew joked about it where they were like, man, it is great to work for a director who has kids. Like, this is awesome. We're wrapping it like eight tens. The director can be home at night. And, you know, and then I thought about like, I worked for directors with kids for 20 years who just didn't give a shit about being home with their kids. Like, <laughs> and like, you know, there's a like, lot of those out here. That's for sure. Yeah. And it's, you know, and it's like, Oh, well, it's not, it's like, we can also model like, like I was in a position of power on this one. I was the director. Like pretty much only I got to say like, I'm leaving to go be my kid. But like that right. sets a tone and ripples out. Like when you are in the position to set the schedule, setting a schedule where you make it clear to everyone involved that being with your kids is like a vital part of how the schedule is working mm-hmm. because that matters to you is something you have the power, when you have the power to do it, it is a useful thing to setting a model to a lot of other people. And I think mm-hmm. some of the other people on that set might do the same. Um, and I know like famously, what was it? Big Little Eyes. They scheduled around because that was Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman and someone else. And like part of the schedule, child, the the regular rhythm of childcare was built into that schedule. Like from the beginning, they were like, we are going to be shooting, understanding that childcare has a normal rhythm to it. Because like yeah. your average childcare doesn't start till 9 a.m., and so a 6 a.m. call is not really compatible with parenting. You know, there's a lot more aftercare options in the afternoon, but like it's all of this stuff that we can think of as we think of what kind of industry we want to build right, and right. how we want the industry to continue to grow. I mean, a major reason that I have walked away from it, a major reason is that it just didn't feel like it would ever be conducive to the life I was going to have as a parent. Like that, mm-hmm. like that is like probably 75 to 80%. And I know it's possible. It's just what the way that I was going to do it and the way I was set up and what was going on in my life personally, it just seemed like it was a battle. Like just hearing you say 6 a.m. call time, it was like the way I worked when I was working in production and stuff, like I just, 
it just doesn't seem like it would have been possible. But you mentioned that having parents as directors or producers who do that, there are, I've heard people talk about it before, like the joy of working for somebody who's like, hey, whatever happens, we're rapping at, at five or something. <laughs> like, that's crazy. Like, that's, that's amazing. Like to have that be like, I want to, I want to go home and put my kids to bed so everybody else can end their day at a normal time like other humans. That's and, amazing. And that, the fact that it shocks people to hear that that's a way to work and that we're just starting to see it on specific sets. Like you mentioned, Big Little Lies. I know um, I Can Never Forgive You shot with French Hours. Yes. Like we should be celebrating that because clearly, I mean, I love Big Little Lies season one and I loved I Can Never Forgive You. Like good content is being made in these ethical productions. Uh, yes. And also, wait, oh, people can sleep. That's amazing. I, I do want to say like as a, you know, woman in a second career where I know I'm like, you know, playing catch up in terms of like my filmmaking career. I have intentionally made the decision that I am not going to have kids at least for the next five years to my parents' dismay because I don't feel like I can do that and have a career. And, and so people are making decisions. Actually, one of my friends, she says, um, she, I was like, oh, what are your thoughts on this? And she's like, oh, I'm having a surrogate. There's no way I can carry the term and have lead this ambitious career that, you know, is my dream. And so I, I think that, there's like, not only does this like tie into like the abortion conversation, but also like looking at the, our industry as how we're not supporting things like maternity leave or parental leave, because it applies to all genders in the tech industry is like six months, you go offline, you're not to be reached. And it's like, that doesn't necessarily, couldn't necessarily work to be that off the grid. But like, there's proven case studies of people being able to take that time to be a parent to focus on it and being supported by companies. So like, I'm curious, like what is Amazon, for example, going to be doing in the, in this space? Like if they're supporting their tech employees this way, what's happening in the entertainment space? Well, that is actually a really big conversation that I've had in the past with folks in the entertainment industry unions. Cause one of the weird things, like there was a time in history where like, there was the GM strike and it was like, okay, like all GM is, does is make cars and primarily they make them in Michigan and man, Michigan is like the theme of the episode. And so it's really, really easy for us <laughs> yeah. to get like all of the GM workers in Michigan to be like, yep, we would like more money, please. We are going to stop working. But in the age of the megalopolis corporation, like, you know, Amazon famously non-union in their warehouses, although Staten Island is bringing it and God bless. Uh, I'm so excited about watching the unionization efforts at the warehouses. But like their shoots were union. Miss Maisel, union show, union truckers, right? Bringing the gear to set, even though Amazon doesn't use union truckers to deliver packages. And that is, and like I had a conversation with the union about this where, and, and they were like, Amazon and, and is very much on our mind as we figure out next steps. Is like, let me say it in a way that, they didn't threaten to unionize Amazon tomorrow. Like they're not that aggressive, but they, you know, they were like, yeah, that is a, that is a thing that like, that is weird. And this wasn't like a top level union official. This was someone further down the ranks. Please. I'm not trying to get the unions in trouble here, <laughs> but they were like, this is a strange thing that like, it's a strange world we're in where we have union shoots 
and non-union working for the same, like the checks are still coming from Amazon accounts payable. And that is very strange. And thinking about like, all right, well, where is the solidarity that we can try and find where everybody can say, all right, we should all be union and we should all get maternity leave. Like if I'm on Mrs. Maisel, you know, and I'm like a production manager on Mrs. Maisel, I should still get paternity. Uh, uh, I should still get family parental leave, leave, whatever parental leave, whatever relationship yeah. or actually family leave in general, you know, like where I work, it's wonderful. Like you can get bereavement leave you like for, you know, like there are, I work for the city university of New York, but there, there are situations where it is acknowledged that your parent, your family obligations might be bigger than just parenting. Like there's going to be other situations in your life where your requirements to be a human might conflict with your work. God bless the PSC CUNY, the fighting union mm -hmm. that I am a part of as faculty. I love them so much. So it's one of those things to think about, like, like where is the solidarity across the board, but it's really tricky to sort of think about like where that's going to come because, you know, the film unions can rightly say like, we have a hundred years of organizing here and we have to be strategic about where we put that organizing into place. But I'm so excited that the Amazon warehouses are unionizing and hopefully we will see parental leave spread from that. I don't know how we got here from Roe v. Wade, but I don't know how we get out. <laughs> I, mean, I think we just do one of those patented transitions. Segway. The tech news. So I was just talking about a shoot I was doing. I've been working on a shoot. You guys are going to hear so much about it for like the next six months because I'm going to be in post now. It's a, it's a project called Gold Status. It is a short film. I haven't done a short film in a while. I haven't done a personal project in a while. The last couple of years have been a lot of client work and there's been this pandemic and, and whatever. I haven't done a narrative thing in a couple of years. So I just did a short film because I had to because I needed to for my sanity. And I do feel saner after it wrapped like the next day someone's like how do you feel and i was like row had just happened so i was like well i'm not happy because mm -hmm. it's like the ending of gangs of new york where the whole battle has been going between leo and daniel day lewis and then they get to about to fight and then like history is bigger than them and crushes them like the draft riot comes and it's like oh your petty little fight's not that important compared to the fucking draft riot i love the end of gangs of new york um, <laughs> you do it, like it, it is Comes up sometimes. I wish that movie held up. I wish that movie held up. I wish everything in that movie was as good as the ending. Like, it's yeah. one of the rare movies where the ending, because usually, you know, basic screenwriting advice is if you have a good ending, work backwards from there. And the ending works mm. for me, where I'm like, oh, you have this fight and you think it's the most important thing in the world. And then the B plot, the Civil War, which has been in the background of the whole thing with like the Irishman getting off the boat and then ending up in coffins, all in that one beautiful shot. The B plot crushes the A plot. It's awesome. And I'm like, but, you know, Cameron Diaz, as much as I love her, doesn't quite pull off the Irish accent. And there's a few other things that, like, take the air out of what. Neither does Leah. I always thought Leah was a real, real missing piece there. He was not Yeah, ready he didn't really that. come onto his own with his Scorsese collaboration until a couple of films yeah. later. Um, regardless, it felt like that. We're like, my film wraps. And I was so excited about my film wrapping. And it was great. And I felt like, I felt like psychologically like an itch had been scratched where I was like, oh, I just, I did the thing that is the thing and it feels good. And then fucking row. And I was like, God fucking damn it. I don't even get to rest for a goddamn fucking day. Um, but it felt good to do it. And <laughs> in tech news, I wanted to talk about one of the decisions we made. So, and you're going to see a bunch of these articles on the site because I'm going to be writing them up and hopefully George will let me keep submitting them and running them for a while as I review a bunch of the gear we worked with. Yep. Um, but we, we shot a camera, Alexa, Atlas Anamorphic. Ooh. The Atlas Anamorphic. You got to talk nice. about Yes. Um, please yeah, do write really about fun. that. Yeah. It was super fun. The, yeah. I will. It was great. Those lenses are nice. 
And I wasn't the DP. Donna Del Castillo is the DP. I'll be linking to her website oh, in the Donna. thing. She's the director. Yeah, Donna's great. But for B camera, like the short film is about deliveristas. If you don't like if if you live in a city, you've probably realized that we survived the pandemic on bicycle messengers. Like New York City only ate for the first year of the pandemic because everybody was getting food delivered. And food delivery in New York is all on bicycles. And it's all on these electric bikes. And it's like 90% immigrant workers who are working for these apps. They call them the ghost boss because they've never met them. And like, it is, it's an amazing story. And they formed a fucking union in the pandemic. I love it. So it's a story about a deliverista in New York, sort of working the for an app called Dine Time. And we had all this biking stuff. And I hate the way every biking movie has shot biking. It's always like, I'm on a 300 millimeter lens and I'm on a street corner and I'm like shooting them passing by. or like. I'm on a camera car and like, you can't really weave through. T- I hate it. So I spent like the last six months working with this guy, Chris Nolte at Propel and, and working with Donna. And we did like six tests and we built a camera rig. That's like a stabilized DJI 4d that can like weave through traffic with the deliverista. So wow. like, yeah, like we're in traffic with him. It is amazing. It is like, this is what it feels like to ride a bike in New York city. We fucking did it. It's awesome. And I but love a it. camera was anamorphic. And I don't know if you guys know the DJI 4D, it only takes really lightweight lenses. And then in April, Lawa got in touch and they were like, hey, we have these lightweight anamorphics. Would you like to test them? And I was like, there is a God. There is a God. (laughs) And uh, I said, yes. And I tested them and they're like, they're beautiful. Are they as nice as the Atlas? No. The Atlas is $7,000 a lens and these Lawa nanomorphs are $1,500 a lens. And do they, are they far better than a $1,500 lens should be? Yes. They're like 350 grams a piece. So you can fly them on the DJI 4D and you can get them in like three different flare colors. You can get them in blue flare or red flare or clear flare. Uh, we shot blue flare and it was really nice. And most importantly, like it looks like an anamorphic lens. Like it has that like nice anamorphic feel where like the background bokeh is a little, little tiny bit like personality and stretchy. And like, you know, they're only one and a half X anamorphic. They're not two X like the Atlas. But I tell you what, like they intercut just fine with the Atlas. Are there, there are totally situations where, if, especially if you're renting, you're going to want to do the full size anamorphic. The Atlas opened to a two and they look pretty good into a, like a two, two, eight split. And anamorphs only open to a two, eight and they really don't start to look good till four. Like there's sacrifices, obviously, but holy shit, are they way better than $1,500 lens has any right to be? The big thing I'm hoping there's only a 27 a 35 and a 50. I'm really hoping they rock a uh, 75 or an 85 someday because that would be like very sweet. But yeah, like affordable anamorphics. There's some, like, I'm sure people on Twitter are going to be like, what about these affordable anamorphics? I don't really like any of the other affordable anamorphics. I won't say them by name. I don't, I don't love them. They're not, they didn't make me happy. But these, like the anamorph, I was like, oh, totally like nice image. Like I'm happy. I am like intercutting this with an Alexa and Atlas and feeling good about it and like getting that like riding a bike in a city vibe so tech news cool and then very exciting i want to see everything and i i definitely hope you can bring us uh and our readers on nofilmschool.com some of the behind bts or just like some how how you did it like it all sounds like there's a lot of learning and cool there, stuff. You have did. like 90 articles that I'm going to be pitching you in the next three weeks as I try and <laughs> document all the cool shit we did. <laughs> because we tried to do, I we tried to do cool shit. And then wrapping up with an Ask No Film School question from Kendall. Hey there, 
there's a line in gold status, the film I just did, which is a, the app saying, hi there. And, you know, when you have an app talking on set, you as the director often do it. So I've been saying, hi there, for a while. So it's very hard. <laughs> that and sounds like a sense. Mickey Mouse impersonation. Yeah. Hey there, I'm a college student. Um, <laughs> I'm a college student looking to build collection experience. Great. You're a two-hour drive from LA, so you're either in San Diego or Santa Barbara. Oh, you say Santa Barbara later. And you say, are there any sites or networking approaches you recommend for finding production jobs? Right now, you're using Staff Me Up, but you're not finding a lot of stuff in Santa Barbara, and you're new to Santa Barbara in film, so you don't really have connections. Where should I get started? Thank you, Kendall Miner. So my advice is Staff Me Up is fine, but seems heavily focused on reality shows. So I think they're trying to go further. You also want to look at a site called Mandy.com. I believe they started charging, which is annoying because they always used to be free for the job hunter. I think a job site should always be free for the people looking for jobs and then the people posting should pay. But I think now you have to pay on Mandy to apply to jobs, which I think is a little philosophically, I don't dig, but whatever. I mean, I've been using Mandy since 1997 or 98, something like that. And like, I've gotten many jobs there. So it's probably worth a little money. Craigslist, believe it or not, has a gigs section. And you might find some things there. And then there's the, um, but here's my biggest recommendation on all of these. You want to build a system that lets you see these jobs immediately. So for instance, like I use an RSS reader. That's how I read No Film School. Uh, I use Feedly.com, but there's many other good ones. Feedly is very popular and it's an RSS reader. RSS stands for really simple syndication. And you can use it to like go to Craigslist and go to gigs and create an RSS feed of like PA gigs or DP gigs or director gigs or filmmaker gigs or, or every job that's posted in TV, film, radio gigs. And it shows up in your RSS reader. And why do you want to do that? Because basically the way a lot of these posts work is when they first go out, there is a flood of responses. And often the people who get hired are from that first pile, right? Like when I'm advertising for a thing, which I haven't done in a while, because mostly word of mouth is my life these days. But when I have, you'll get 200 responses. I mean, the job market's different now. You might get 50, but still, you're not going to read all 50 resumes. You're going to look at the first 10, the first good person you're going to call. So you want to make sure that you, you have some system where like I leave when I was on the job hunt when I was younger, Feedly was always open in a different window in my computer. And so like as things appeared, I would just immediately apply to them. If I was like working on an article or like watching a movie or whatever, I was on it so that I was in that first pile because that's the key when you're doing online job hunting is trying to be in that first pile. The other thing you want to do is make physical, physical business cards. I know even in the pandemic, it seems crazy to do that, but physical business cards, you don't need a job description or anything on it. It needs to be something that you paid like $20 for. It can't have like an ad on the back because on the back, you want people to write how they met you. And at the end of every job you do, every time you get to go out on anything, just like write your info on the back and give your card to people. And so you know, it, it like, it's like a long habit of working on film sets that we exchange cards at the end of the thing. I always tell the story about NAB every year at the end of the flight home from NAB. I'm going through everybody's cards and looking at their websites and following their socials. And, uh, you know, we just, this job I just did, we had a PA on his first ever film job and he was great. And that's the last thing to say. It's like, just be great. Like, just be awesome. And like, this guy has a career. Like, everyone on this job is going to bring him on all of their next job. So from this one job, he met like, we were a small crew. We were like 15 people. So we met like 15 people. 10 of them are busy working all the time. And all 10 of them 
he is top of mind for like, oh, on the next one, I'll bring you out on this. I even walked by at one point where someone was explaining like, oh, I'm on this thing in July and like, we'll try and bring you out. Like, you know, word of mouth is the engine of this industry, which is why when you're in school, you should go out on a bunch of free gigs because then you get to meet a bunch of other people. But like, I hate encouraging people to do free work because it's unethical, but you're a student. You can, I think that you can do there's a couple one days. There are a couple ways that you can also like dig into that sort of word of mouth approach without doing free work necessarily, or by, you know, tapping into a community. I know we talked about Channel 101 in the past, a community where people are making things and it's more about like getting the experience and getting any type of experience on set, um, even if it is like a scrappy little indie project. But I spent like a year trying to get uh, an assistant job um, in more of like the development writer space via Holly list and Facebook group postings. And I heard back from two people ever when it was just a cold email and submissions. So what I'd recommend is actually just like reaching out to every single person, you know, in a systematic way. Or what I did is I went to LinkedIn. I Googled like showrunners assistants at anybody who I had any mutual connection with. I asked for an introduction to, and then I just sent cold emails or cold messages to these people who are in that role. And I, and, and offered to do a quick zoom or take them out to coffee. And that is actually anyway, any network that you have existing. So like I tapped into the university of Michigan network and I ended up getting my job now, which is like an assistant to a producer on an Amazon show and also doing a lot of development work on shows and movies with everyone from like film nation to MRC to picture start. That was through a networking event through the Gotham, I met a woman, we stayed in touch, we had virtual coffee. And a year later, she was talking to the person who I ultimately ended up replacing. And she recommended me. So I am like pro building relationships and word of mouth, because there's nothing more powerful than somebody recommending you. So that's where I'd put my energy is building those personal connections. And and if that means just taking out three people to coffee a week while you're sort of ramping up and going in with an open mind and hearing their advice and, and being curious, like, I think that's where I've had the most success. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot to add because I think you guys really covered it well, but I'll just emphasize again the idea that you both touched on, which is, I do think, well, I, I like Charles kind of made a mention of, of the free labor idea. And I think sometimes it could just be finding people that are doing stuff that you want to be a part of. If it's not a job, it might just be whatever local is happening. Like you may not be in the industry industry in Santa Barbara, but I'm sure there are people making stuff. And one of the most important things you can do is make stuff with people making mm-hmm. stuff. And that's kind of some combination of like free labor plus collaboration plus social, especially at a certain age. And then at a certain point, everybody starts or some people start getting money to do stuff. And those people that you were with, they're going to start being like, you know, kicking you some of the money or bringing you on. And then you start building a resume. And that's kind of that's part of what happened to me. And I think finding those communities, sometimes they're in film school, sometimes they're through who knows what, but just getting yourself into them by saying, hey, I want to help. You're shooting something, I want to help shoot it. Like, and get on set and learn and talk and chat and make friends and work. And like that other piece you guys have both talked about, which is just like being great 
like being a fun, chill person, being easy to work with, being willing to do stuff, being fun to have around, having a good time and a good energy and a positive energy and being a nice person just goes so far that it's like easy to say in hindsight, but like setting aside ego will probably on its own jump you ahead of so many people. Because so many people when they're young, the biggest obstacle in their way is their own ego, their idea of what they should be doing or where they should be or how good they, sh- they actually are or how much they actually know. And if you're at any age being able to be like, hey, I'm here, I want to learn and I want to be humbled and I want to, like, you're just going to be a sponge, but also people are going to want you around always if you're like that, even if you're faking it. Like, just fake it because it's going to mean people will like you and want you around. And, you you know, you don't have to prove to everybody how much you know. That's a quick way to stop getting jobs. I think. Oh, yeah. Those are my two um, cents. So I, I always like to tell this story because it's embarrassing to me. Back when I was in the job hunt right after USC and I was doing anything I could find on Mandy or Craigslist to make a living, I found a job on Mandy shooting like a one day DP job. And I did it and I thought it went fine. And then the next day, that same company posted an ad on Mandy for a low drama DP. And I was like, well, what shit. What is a low drama? A low drama. <laughs> I mean, I think the implication was that they had just worked with a high drama DP and that they felt like they need. What did you do? I have, oh, no idea. But I became more conscious of my onset manner. Like, I don't know what I did. I don't think I did anything wrong. Like, looking back, I'm like, I think I was very, here's the, what I really think was, was I was very used to working. Like I just come off like shooting like three thesis films. So I was used to like, I'm shooting 35 and anamorphic and I have a first AC and a second AC and I have a gaffer and I have a key grip and I have three and three and like, we're rolling big and we're doing what we need to do. And then this was like a job where it was like just me holding a camera. And I think I wasn't as used to like not having support. And there was mm. stuff that like on a big thesis film, you're like, okay, well, we're going to schedule the day around the light. Whereas like, this was just a little like, viral video before we knew what those were going to be. And so I would ask for things like, oh, well, let's like talk through the day and maybe we shoot this scene first because the sun will be coming in this window. And I think that they thought of that as high maintenance. And like, maybe I was right to ask for those things, but I think that I've thought a lot about, there was a thing that went around Twitter recently. This is more for later in your career, but there was a thing that went around editor Twitter recently of like, how many times do you push back on a client note? And like some major, major editor chimed in and was like, once, you get once and then you just do what they're asking you. You one time you can say, you know, I don't think that's the smartest move. And then if they're like, no, we're doing it, you just do it. Like it's a, it, and like, I, I don't, I have no idea exactly what I was that was so high drama, but I was high drama enough. They posted that ad. And I think about that ad a lot. And I, I want to make sure no client feels the need to post that ad again. Hey, it's all about learning. Yes. Like there's another way you could have reacted to that, which has been like, fuck them. Yeah. They don't know what they're talking about. It's their fault, not mine. See, that's the thing. I think we can always, like every turn is an opportunity to, like it's either going to be, you're either going to grow or you're going to fight, yeah. you know? And I think you took the healthiest route there. I try. All right, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, that's been the No Film School podcast for the week. If you want to find us on the internet, I'm on the internet. Uh, I write a lot of articles at No Film School. I have a YouTube channel where I do a lot of filmmaking stuff. There'll be a lot of gold status content in both coming up soon. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Charles Zane, although that's a lot of bike shit and pictures of my kid at baseball games. I was just like smiling at the idea of pictures of your kids 
your kid, your daughter at a baseball game. And I was like, that sounds so great. We People should follow that. Share I your took parents. her to her first, like the day we were at, the day after we wrapped, I took her to her first ever uh, Brooklyn Cyclones game. Man, oh. three-year-olds and a baseball mascot. It's pretty great. Pure joy. <laughs> um, I wish my feed was that cute, but you can follow um, my work at Lost in Graceland on social media and at ggHawkins.com. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. You can find my not-safe-for-work snark on Twitter, <laughs> at George Edelman, and whatever else weird stuff comes through my head that I don't filter super well there. You can also find everything we talked about today and more at nofilmschool.com. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check us out on Instagram and YouTube, and be sure to stay tuned for a lot of other podcasts. We have a lot of interviews coming along with filmmakers, editors, cinematographers, directors of many of the features and television shows this summer, not to mention this weekly show. So leave a comment, let us know what you think, and please continue asking the questions. Send them to editor at nofilmschool.com. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.